Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right. uh, Today's show cuts about as close to home for me as it possibly could and probably does for you, too, because Alzheimer's disease is just so prevalent. It's just very unlikely with five million or so Alzheimer's patients in the United States that you don't know somebody, that you haven't followed somebody's story. Um, it might be somebody in your life. You might have also been a big fan of Tom Aliazzi from Car Talk here on this radio station or uh, watched the career of Pat Summit. Um, for me, uh, the story kind of started uh, earlier in this decade uh, when my mother began to forget things. I took her to a neurologist and he said to her, I'm going to say three words to you and I want you to remember them because I'll ask, them, ask you about them in, in just a little while. Banana, chair, sunset. And then he asked her a whole bunch of other things, and in the most charming manner possible, she revealed how little she could remember. And she'd kind of been, I don't know, she'd managed to disguise this from me. I was very closely involved with her all the time, but I, I just wasn't, uh, somehow or other, she was very good at hiding it. And it was really breathtaking. It, uh, she came from a, a little town in Massachusetts, which uh, was put underwater, part of the Quabbin Reservoir, and it, it, it seemed like her whole life was kind of underwater uh, as she tried to answer these questions. And then the doctor said, do you remember any of those three words? And she said, what three words? And that was the kind of the beginning uh, of our Alzheimer's disease journey. And banana cheer sunset kind of became my mantra for our Alzheimer's disease. But everybody has their own. And that's not the reason we're doing this show. Uh, and we could have lots of reasons for doing this show because, in fact, there's so much interesting research being done in Alzheimer's disease that almost, it seems anyway, as, that, as though every week produces something. And there's, uh, within this week, there was this uh, enormous dump of, uh, of research uh, on epigenomics that, that had some pretty significant uh, implications for Alzheimer's disease. But the real reason we're doing this show is because I got an email from one of the science teachers at the place I went to uh, high school. Um, and uh, his wife has Alzheimer's disease, and he, being a science teacher, was really interested in the modern science of it. What's going on right now? He's really been following this stuff. He may call in at some point during the course of the show, and I hadn't really thought about it that much. My mother died in 2006, uh, and 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 I'm not a scientist. I'm I'm a um, I mean, I wish I'd been a good scientist. I wish I'd learned all the things that he could have taught me. Or when I went to Yale, I wish I'd learned some of the things that our guests today could have taught me. But I didn't. Uh, but the science of this is really interesting. Unfortunately, we do have a producer here, Betsy Kaplan, a nurse uh, who can understand the science. So she's helped to put together a show today. With us in studio are Stephen Strittmatter. He is professor of neurology and professor of neurobiology and director of the Memory Disorders Clinic at Yale. And even though I don't have a memory disorder, I can't remember the other title you just told me that was really hard. What was that one? Uh, director of Cellular Neuroscience, Neurodegeneration, and Repair, a See, laboratory. Yeah. If you were director of Banana Chair Sunset, I would have done <laughs> a whole lot better. But um, uh, And with us also Christopher, Christopher Van Dyke, a professor of psychiatry, neurology, and neurobiology, and director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale University. So, um, Christopher Van Dyke, I'll start with you. Um, what is Alzheimer's disease? I mean, is, is there now a, a comfortable thumbnail description? I know we're going to set early onset 
uh, Alzheimer's aside for a second and kind of talk about uh, the animal that, that hits us uh, from maybe from 60 years uh, uh, onward. Do we, do we know what that animal is now? Well, we know a lot, and we know a lot more than we used to, um, and there's a lot we, we need to know. So I'll start with just a little bit of the um, the description, what it's like in people, and probably Steve can add in more about, about some of the, the pathogenesis. But <clears throat> so Alzheimer's is the, the most common cause by far of dementia in older people. And um, maybe we should say that what dementia is is, is a, a, a loss of cognitive abilities that's bad enough to affect a person's daily functioning. So Alzheimer's starts, um, again, typically between the ages of 65 and 85. It can be begin earlier. Um, most common early symptoms, Colin, are just what you describe. Uh, it's a, it's a typically a loss of short-term memory. person becomes forgetful. They may um, start to repeat themselves in conversation because they can't remember what they've said. They may become disoriented to date. So, you know, fairly innocent short-term memory symptoms that get steadily worse. They go on to involve higher uh, cognitive abilities like language, communication, visual-spatial ability, uh, start to impact a person's daily living skills, uh, usually first things like driving a car or doing finances, things that are more difficult, and eventually go on to involve basic things like cooking chores, dressing themselves, um, probably about a 10-year course on average, although it varies a great deal. Um, um, just to interrupt for a second, um, you know, my experience there with my mother was that uh, a neurologist examined her, um, and, and he didn't say she had dementia. He said she had Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there's other kinds of dementia. dementia. There's vascular. There's Lewy body. There's all kinds of stuff. So not having any lab panels or anything, I mean, how did he know she had Alzheimer's disease? Well, he he didn't. <laughs> He didn't, for sure. But, um, and and one of the things we can talk about, you know, in terms of, of specialty clinics, uh, such as the one that, that Steve is directing, um, you know, we do uh, an initial workup. We, uh, we take a history, which is so important. Then we do um, cognitive testing, mental status testing. We may refer the person for very in-depth cognitive testing with a neuropsychologist to really delineate just what they can and can't do. Um, we do a bunch of laboratory tests for so-called reversible causes or other medical causes of, of cognitive impairment, uh, do specialized brain imaging. Um, things like MRI, structural imaging may, may involve uh, even more specialized imaging. Uh, and then, then there are a range of, of more specialized tests. But Actually, why don't we let Steve jump in here and yeah. some of the things that I, they do? So. I was well. I was going to go to Steve next and say, but let's let's go. Okay, so um, Chris started us on the outside. Uh, you know what we see in the patient, but pretend for a moment that you're start talking to a reasonably gifted middle school science student, which is probably about where I am right now, and maybe a lot of our listeners too. And and you know, as best you can, then sort of sketch it out for us. What's going on? What do we know that's going on inside the brain? So um, when we see people clinically, we define their disease as probable Alzheimer's. But we say somebody has definite Alzheimer's when the brain is studied under a microscope, mm -hmm. and usually this is after somebody's deceased. There's a particular appearance under the microscope which defines Alzheimer's disease, and that's the presence of 
amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles in a certain density, and this is path. This makes the disease, the diagnosis. What we're find this is something that's been known for a hundred years. We know that these things are present. They define the disease pathologically. Where all the research is going is to understand how those things we see in a microscope affect the biochemistry, the synapse function, why they manifest themselves in the symptoms that we see amongst our patients. Um, I, I just want to roll back the tape for a second. Uh, one of the phrases that uh, I encountered a lot doing the reading for this was amyloid plaques. But right. uh, once again, uh, at, at uh, the level of a 12-year-old, uh, you know, uh, reasonably gifted uh, middle school student, right. What is an amyloid plaque? Right. So when we, so they they not the normal appearing brain. The brain is full of neurons, supporting cells, synapses. In Alzheimer's disease, there's huge blobs of protein. You can think of them as goo. They accumulate. They're bigger than a cell. They're huge balls of protein, and they're composed largely of one molecule chemically, and this is the beta amyloid peptide. That's why they're called amyloid plaques. So they can fill up as much as 2 to 5% of the brain, and then they cause the neurons all around them to stop working normally. Um We'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, but uh, first of all, I want to say if you have questions or comments, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Um, and um, Christopher uh, Van Dyke, somebody has tweeted us with a really great question. Uh, Nancy tweets, how important is it to get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's versus other kinds of dementia? So, you know, as we alluded to this, there are other things that present as dementia. How important is it to know that your relatives or your own dementia is Alzheimer's disease? Well, I, I think it's it's very important, and I think it's going to become even more important when we get very effective and, and specific treatments for each of the dementias. But right now, um, the the drugs that we have that are approved that are that are fairly modest, they're approved for Alzheimer's disease. They're not approved for frontal lobe, frontotemporal dementia. Um, they do have some benefit in vascular dementia. Many people think they definitely have benefit in Lewy body dementia, most, uh, most experts think. But it, so it can help uh, in that way to know how to treat. It can certainly help to know about the prognosis uh, and the, the other associated symptoms. Uh, I think it will become highly important when we get, let's say we have a, a, a highly effective uh, anti-amyloid treatment, uh, referring to the, the, the protein that, that Steve's discussing. Uh, that's likely to be effective in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it's likely not to be effective in frontotemporal dementia. So going forward, it's going to become extremely important to know the difference. So um, Stephen Strittmatter, how... Uh, the, uh, the $64 billion question is, what's the pathway, right? How does this stuff get in one, in somebody's brain? How does this stuff that we don't want to have? See, this is how I think. This yeah, is yeah. the level at which right, I have to right. express this stuff. How does this stuff that I don't want to have in my brain get in my brain? And so and one of the you, part of your research is to fill in gaps in the understanding of what that pathway is. That's right. Um, l- let, me, um, let me just say, clarify one thing before I answer your <laughs> question sure. is – Chris's answer is absolutely correct for the vast majority of people. But one of the things that's critical and to get out to your audience is there's a small number of people who have treatable causes of dementia. Mm -hmm. They may 
if it's confirmed they have Alzheimer's, they're in the boat that we were just talking about, but there's a small subset, maybe it's only a couple percent of people who have treatable causes of dementia, and their whole life may change if that turns out to be the case, and they don't have Alzheimer's disease. Okay, back to the question about amyloid. Um, you're right, my research focuses largely on how amyloid damages the neurons in the brain. But you asked the question, how does it get there? Why does it pile up? What's going on? Mm -hmm. uh, and the short answer is we really, unfortunately, don't know that in detail. We know it for a small number of patients who have mutations in genes that are involved in the amyloid uh, process. That's probably only one out of 200 people with Alzheimer's. It's the people who have early onset Alzheimer's disease. But for the vast majority, we don't know why amyloid piles up in a subset of people who reach the age of 85 and others do not. Um, obviously, there are some ways to think about this, think, think about anything like this. One of them is genetic. And as, it's pretty obvious with the early onset, and that's the 30 to 60 uh, group and uh, it's probably what Pat Summit, I assume, uh, has. That there's a pretty large genetic component there, right? I mean, that's pretty much. Well, in those cases, it's what we call um, a high penetrant autosomal dominant disease. We would say scientifically, a hundred percent genetic. So then, I mean, the other questions, uh, another another question would be, obviously, there may be a genetic factor in the kind of Alzheimer's that we're talking about here. There also might be an epigenetic factor. There probably are some epigenetic factors, right? Genes that get switched on over the course of a lifetime. Right. Um, life kind of writes on our DNA, flips some things on that didn't used to be on. I assume that that's one of the places that the research looks, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and as you were mentioning, there was just a... a, a a whole slew of papers that came out in the highest profile journals about surveying those changes, those switches across all the genes in multiple diseases, not just in Alzheimer's. And so there's different switches for different genes. And I think we're at the forefront of new knowledge about that. And exactly how important that is in Alzheimer's disease, it's clear that there are switches that are being turned, how much they contribute to this issue of nerve cells dysfunctioning is something we're going to find out over the next few years, I think. So there's there's a, uh, Chris Van Dyke, there's just such a thicket of questions here. I mean, how does this happen? Uh, how do we prevent it from happening? Uh, if it starts to happen, start it's just in the early stages of happening, are there therapies we can introduce at that point um, to slow its progression down or may maybe help somebody? That's where you're coming in right now, right? One of the questions that you have is, are, are there drug therapies that can be introduced to help somebody if you catch it? And so tell us about this study. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. So, um, yeah, and that's, it's very timely because really just with, within the past year or so, we have launched the first uh, true prevention studies for Alzheimer's disease in our history. And the, the biggest one of those is something called the A4 study. Um, and... Uh, the idea here is to is to identify people who are at very high risk of developing Alzheimer's symptoms and then treating them in a, in a preventive manner. So in this case, uh, this is a study. This is going on nationwide. It's funded uh, in part by the National Institute of Aging. And it, it involves looking for people who are cognitively normal between the ages of 65 and 85 
but then who have evidence of early pathogenesis along the lines that, that Steve is describing. So amyloid plaques can be seen not only at autopsy, but also now in vivo with specialized brain imaging, specialized pet imaging. Uh, so in, in this case, uh, people who are cognitively normal undergo a PET scan, and if it does show elevated amyloid, then they are candidates for, for the prevention trial. And the, the drug in question is an amyloid-lowering drug, an amyloid-lowering antibody that, that they're then treated with in a, in a controlled study for over three years. Um. This is if there's some progress along these lines, either with your study or, or or some other study, it's going to raise a really penetrating question. So, okay, let's use me as a living laboratory for a second. So, my mother had an Alzheimer's diagnosis and died from it. Maybe I'm a candidate. Maybe I I I, I say, well, you know, maybe I should be in your study. Um, but if if there's if you have success in the study. Isn't everybody going to want a PET scan? In other words, if in fact there's there turns out to be a therapeutic drug that can arrest the progress or slow slow the pro- progress down, sometime around age fifty five or so, isn't everybody kind of shouldn't everybody want whether it's practical or not a PET scan to know whether or not they should be starting on one of these drugs? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think so. That's an if. Mm-hmm. If we're so fortunate to have a treatment that can prevent or slow or or reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease, then I think it would become very much part of standard preventive care like colonoscopy and everything else. Um, So that's that's if we're so lucky that a study like this uh, works, and and that's what we're we're hoping for at this point. Um, And and maybe I should, should add that you know, this kind of PET scanning is clinically approved. Uh, it is clinically available, um, but it is extremely expensive. And and really, presently, it's not uh, well reimbursed by insurance at all. Uh, but I think that may change if we, in fact, have a preventive therapy, something that we could use the information to, to uh, take advantage of. Um, we got a call here. I think it is from Doc Cayley, uh, the science teacher I was speaking of at the beginning, uh, the guy who kind of, he's really the reason we're doing the show right now. So it's great that he's calling in, uh, even though it's for uh, kind of a sad reason. Uh, so you're on the air, Doc. Uh, hey, thank you, Colin, for the shout out. I appreciate you're not uh, you're not a bright middle school uh, science student. <laughs> no, I, I, I never was, unfortunately. You knew me at the time. You're better than that. I should I should uh, point out that. Uh, you were pretty strong in school, uh, and thank you for your guests, uh, their work on Alzheimer's. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, t- a comment, first of all, uh, are they familiar with the work of the Alzheimer's, uh, um, uh, Cure Alzheimer's Fund, which supports the research at the uh, Alzheimer's Disease Research Foundation? Um, and Dr. Rudy Tanzi, I would like uh, his work, uh, if you could comment and possibly on the work that he's carrying out. I think it probably dovetails with your work. It's, it's a slightly different uh, approach. And also, if you could comment about the prospects for speeding research forward by their development of the uh, Alzheimer's in a Petri dish. All right. Uh, so the, this maybe we'll start with Steve Stripmatter uh, on this one uh, and uh, see what he's got to say. But thanks for your call back. Very much, Colin. Best wishes to you. Thanks for putting this out there. Much appreciated. Oh, sorry. Uh, and uh, so go ahead. Uh, so I guess uh, the, sort of the question was about uh, the work that's uh, being done um, in Boston at Rudy Tanzi's lab. He's had a longstanding interest in the genetics of Alzheimer's, been involved in describing some of those rare genes that, that cause the um, 
disease in, in early onset. Uh, but he's also been interested in genes that affect the risk. And more recently, the, the mechanism that um, your caller just mentioned, this uh, Alzheimer's in a dish, is to take human stem cells, grow them in a dish, and then induce the Alzheimer's process by um, overexpressing the human disease genes in this Petri dish. And then the same pathologic uh, hallmarks that I was talking about, that is the amyloid plaques and the neurofibroid tangles can form in the dish. So that's been described. And this could be, we don't know yet, but this may be a way to really accelerate the research process to then understand how we can modify the formation of those plaques and their toxic effects on neurons. So it's an exciting uh, development of a tool which may speed up research dramatically. Um, we're going to take a break here. Before we do that, I want to mention that uh, Dr. Strutmatter, who you just heard speaking, is going to be honored at the Brain Ball, the first annual Brain Ball at the Hartford Science Center on March 7th. Uh, and the event's called Where Compassion Meets Science. Uh, and uh, he will be, I think, it's not like the Oscars. I think he already knows he's getting this. Uh, he'll be getting the Association's 2014 Research Award. Uh, you can get tickets to go to the Brain Ball. And this is something, that, if it's something that's in your life right now, you know, in your family, among your loved ones, you might want to think about that. It's at alz.org slash ct. All right, we're back. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease. So we're uh, fortunate to have uh, two of the leading researchers uh, in this with us. Uh, Christopher Van Dyke is with us, professor of psychiatry, neurology, and neuromyology at the director of the Alzheimer's Disease uh, Research Unit at Yale University, and Stephen Strittmatter. Uh, he is professor of neurology and professor of neurobiology and director of the Memory Disorders Clinic at Yale. He's also something else, but I can't remember what it is. Uh, I mean, really, because I literally can't remember it. Um, the... Um, uh, I want to begin. I want to begin this segment a little bit, uh, Christopher Van Dyke. There's a lot of people probably sitting out there listening to the radio, saying to themselves, "Well, I don't want to get Alzheimer's disease. I don't even want to have it detected early enough so that I could get in Christopher Van Dyke's A4 study and and have a 67 percent chance or whatever it is of getting this drug that maybe it's going to work. I, I don't want any of that. Um, so, I, and I want to control my own destiny. I'm 35. I'm 40 years old. What can I do?" And, and we've already said, well, we don't necessarily absolutely know what you should do or shouldn't do. You probably shouldn't play NFL football uh, and get hit in, the hit, hit in the head a lot. But beyond that, um, what can you say to them? Well, you definitely should not play NFL football and get hit in the head a lot. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and, and shouldn't let your kids do that especially. Um, but I think, you know, this is one of the most commonly asked questions, you know, what can we do to lower risk? Um, and it, it's difficult because there, there, is a, there are a lot of things that are suggested um, by, by certain lines of evidence. There's very little proof for any of it uh, because we can't do controlled trials of lifestyle to, to prove the issue. So um, first of all, I would say probably the strongest evidence of all would be for things like aerobic exercise. Uh, as a general rule, we tell people that things that improve heart health also improve brain health and uh, are, are, are likely to lower the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there's a link between Alzheimer's disease and cerebrovascular disease, um, stroke. There's a link with diabetes. Uh, there's some link with, with high blood pressure, high cholesterol. 
So um, managing all of those things is important. Uh, aerobic exercise is probably the single biggest thing we would point to, and we're actually uh, going to be starting this year in this national consortium that I work with um, called the ADCS, a controlled randomized trial of aerobic exercise. So in this case, we truly can um, randomize people to lifestyle, you know, to aerobic exercise versus more couch potato lifestyle. Um, uh, other things that we will we will tell people there's there's uh, there's some evidence in favor of a an intellectually cognitively demanding lifestyle. So even in older age, staying active, um, doing crossword puzzles, whatever things that you enjoy doing. Um, in diet, there's suggestive evidence epidemiologically for things like, um, you know, fish in the diet, for uh, fruits and vegetables, for a low-fat diet, uh, and, and so forth. But one thing I would caution people, there are some programs out there that are being publicized that are really highly tyrannical of, you know, dozens of things to do. Uh, and I would say a lot of those are not very evidence-based, you know, certain supplements to take and, and so forth. Um, actually, um, Stephen Stripmatter, as you're, as you're looking at this as a scientist, I mean, I've got a couple of different questions to ask you about this, but, um, uh, this is, you're working on a, on a very specific targeted aspect uh, of this disease, but there's no way that you don't frequently pull back from that and say, wow, what kind of disease is this? You know, how's, how's the best way not to get it? Uh, you know, what, you know, what can I intuit about, about it? One thing that we know is that you don't believe that a, a healthy breakfast is important uh, <laughs> because you didn't have one today. Um, but, I mean, d as you're listening to Christopher Van Dyke talk, it, does that all resonate with you? Or, or, or are you more at the point of saying, well, you know, on the other hand, I could be telling you 10 years from now that none of that stuff uh, does any good? No, I think there's some consistency. The what he put at the top of his list, aerobic exercise. Uh, this is something that's also true in laboratory animals who've been engineered to have something that's akin to Alzheimer's. The same kind of activity and also exposure to novel environments are beneficial in reducing what we can detect in in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. So I think again. Not only is there clinical data, there's laboratory support for that idea, putting it at the top of the list. But you, there aren't too many other things. Your work, the way I understand it, is probably more, I mean, it's pure science, but it's probably more aimed at the, I've got Alzheimer's disease, what can you do for me question, right? Yeah, our, our research focuses um, on this issue once there is amyloid pathology in the brain and it starts to damage neurons. How can we interrupt that process? How can we protect the neurons, even though this peptide is um, accumulating? Now, I would say, though, that that happens really early. Most of the data now says people, and that's the whole basis of the A4 study that Chris was talking about, that people have amyloid pathology for five, even 10 years before they develop dementia. So this is a, a long process. And we may in the future be able to detect those people and start them on a therapy which interrupts the, the biochemical, the pathologic process that happens in the brain that goes from amyloid to actually diseased brain and dementia. Although ideally, which we would like to do then is to uh, break the chain before the amyloid develops, right? That would be the best thing. I mean, you want to protect the neurons after the amyloid develops. Right. But there must be somebody out there who's saying, well, no, just, let's just not get the amyloid to begin with. 
Absolutely, that's true. Um, at the present time, we don't have that therapy, mm -hmm. um, number one. And number two, at least from what we know genetically right now, we, that would have to be something that would be safe enough to essentially give to everyone. Everyone age 60 would have to right. partake of this intervention. It's very few uh, drugs or interventions that are safe enough that you want to give them to absolutely everyone. Yeah. No, we're not ready to put it in the drinking water yet. Um, so let me ask both of you this question, but since he's taking a sip of something, I'll stay with you, Dr. Stripmatter. Um, how, how uh, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, but how certain are you or, or what's your level of understanding about uh, whether or not this is always the same disease or uh, I'm, I'm not, that's not the right way to phrase it, but you know, it, obviously it's possible that, that Alzheimer's is a disease that involves amyloids damaging neurons, but that, you know, if you looked at 10 patients and you could know everything about them, it, they might be playing out a certain way with, you know, a really certain strong pattern in three of those patients. And then another strong pattern where, I don't know, maybe immune function is, plays a much bigger role in four of those patients. And then three more patients have some other epigenetic factor that really, in other words, is it possible that really we're talking about a disease that has multiple manifestations and therefore multiple treatments? I think it's a very good question, and it's something that comes up in, in multiple areas of medicine. Um, I guess having seen many um, aspects uh, of the clinical situation, maybe Alzheimer's is more homogeneous than most diseases. So mm -hmm. I think there's sort of less pressure to subdivide it than, say, in schizophrenia, where it may be a thousand different diseases. That being said, though, you're absolutely right. Um, Probably as the disease progresses, different factors become more important in different people. And um, to intervene as the disease goes on may require attacking different targets in order to stop the process. As you said, immune factors may be more important in one uh, patient, whereas metabolic factors in another, vascular in another. It may be triggered early on by amyloid pathology, but then diverge into multiple steps. And the later in disease you are, the more you need to try to attack all of them, some being more important in different people. Um, Christopher Van Dyke, what's your take on that? Uh, 10 years from now, are we going to be talking about this in a much more multi-pronged way? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I want to just say that Steve really did have a healthy breakfast today because there is some evidence that coffee. coffee's actually may be uh, uh, beneficial for Alzheimer's disease, reducing risk. So, Coffee but, and a little kiwi fruit, and so <laughs> that, that would have been, you know, let's but, not let him off the hook that easily. Oh. But be that as it may, yeah, I, I agree with Steve that it's more homogeneous than most uh, diseases, certainly than, let's say, frontotemporal dementia, another, another common uh, dementia. But there, there, is, there is a lot of heterogeneity. And I think that on a very basic level, just the, uh, these early onset autosomal dominant forms are, are, are quite different genetically, um, age of onset, but also, also the way they present, you know, the kinds of associated symptoms are really uh, different from later onset, more common Alzheimer's disease. But even with the later onset, more common forms, you know, there are people who carry this major uh, genetic risk factor that we haven't talked about, you know, APOE, APOE4, apolipoprotein E, epsilon4. Um, the, um, 
within people with later onsets, uh, we've talked about this sort of common amnestic form, um, you know, such as you described, really, with a short-term memory. Uh, but there are individuals with Alzheimer's who really begin with language variants or, or with um, what we call frontal executive function variants uh, that can look a lot like uh, frontal lobe dementia. Um, and not so much with short-term memory that, that's relatively preserved. Uh, so so I, I do think there, there is a lot of heterogeneity, and we, we probably will um, in time start to think of it as a, a constellation of diseases with a, with a common uh, neuropathology. I mean, this is so unscientific, but in, in terms of presentation from a curbside uh, perspective, it, it always did strike me. My mother was in an Alzheimer's care facility where I would visit her, you know, constantly, and it was therefore surrounded by people with Alzheimer's disease. And I used to say, boy, there's different snowflakes, you know, <laughs> in terms of you know, some of that just has to do, obviously, with the progression of disease, where they are on that continuum. But it also even it did even seem as just uh, that this, the, 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 the symptomology was different, really, uh, from patient to patient. That's kind of what you're saying there, too. They, they just it doesn't express the same way. That's right. Um, but that's different from kind of the kind of causal questions, right? And, you know, I just want to go back to something that you said, Dr. Strip Matter. I'm now in the area of asking profoundly <laughs> ignorant questions that, that you shouldn't even have to be pestered with, but then you came here. So, um, so you know, you were sort of, we were talking a little bit more just before this about whether or not uh, there are things, maybe different things, that kick in uh, after the uh, initial amyloid contamination or wh whatever we want to call it, you know, that maybe in this patient there's a bigger immune thing, maybe in this patient there's something else. But might it also be the case if we back further up uh, towards the beginning of that pathway that there are also different triggers? Like, you know, in other words, one person eats a lot of movie popcorn, which actually has been mentioned, <laughs> in at least in multiple articles that I've read, they say, they say the stuff that's on the movie popcorn you know, goes through the blood-brain barrier and you know, put, totally put me off movie popcorn. But so, I mean, but, you know, in other words, I mean, that's a semi-facetious example. But in terms of what started this row of dominoes falling, and if the end of the, of the row of dominoes is the neurons, couldn't the differences be anywhere up that chain of dominoes that are falling? I mean, in terms of what the triggers are? Well, I think, you know, it would be easy to say that apolipoprotein E that Chris was just mentioning is one of the triggers, mm -hmm. that the genetic variants there affect a beta metabolism and therefore its uh, ability to trigger this process which damages neurons. Um, and so the people who carry particular alleles are clearly triggering the disease in a different way than the people who don't carry those apolipoprotein E4 alleles. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And the, uh, the other question I guess I have about this is, I mean, one one area that I, – are I, there been a lot of twin studies? I mean, there, I'm sure there are identical twins uh, who um, – who, one of whom winds up with this and the other one doesn't, which helps us begin to separate out the purely – you're nodding your head, so. Oh, yes. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, we do think of, of Alzheimer's as – Mostly, I mean, over half genetic, probably at least fifty percent. Uh, some studies would say more, more seventy percent. But it's certainly not all genetic by any means. And one of the just just most blatant examples of that is uh, identical twin studies, where one twin may have uh, get Alzheimer's and the other live thirty more years and not have not get anything at all. So it's it's uh, you know quite clearly more than genetics. Uh, I think we we don't understand 
the non-genetic factors uh, very well at all. I think there's a, an awful lot to be learned. Certainly something, uh, you know, very clear-cut like prior head injury, you know, is a, is a known issue. Now, that's something that, you know, we think can trigger uh, Alzheimer's pathogenesis in some individuals. By the way, on, on that note, when we talked about tackle football, for example, increasingly I think we've come to realize that those individuals are at higher risk of Alzheimer's, but there's also something else, you know, this thing that's being called chronic traumatic encephalopathy that's really very different from Alzheimer's disease. Um, but, but uh, you know, every bit is bad. I'm going to do, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with a final segment here. If you have questions, give us a call, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. You can tweet us at WNPR Colin. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Julia Pistel. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and photos, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our annual pre-Oscar special edition of The Nose. Now, back to Colin. And we're talking about Alzheimer's disease today. Uh, I first of all want to remind you uh, that on March 7th, uh, the first annual Brain Ball will be held at the Hartford Science Center. Uh, it's called uh, When Compassion Meets Science. Uh, Stephen Strittmatter, who's uh, here in the studio, is going to be honored at it. And you can go, uh, if you go to the website, www.alz.org slash ct. Uh, you can get information uh, on how to get tickets to that, um, as long as I'm giving out this kind of information. And so I don't forget, and before we run out of time, um, if you want to participate in clinical trials, I mean, that's what we're one of the things we're talking about here, uh, you can uh, contact the Yale Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit. Uh, you don't have to be uh, presenting with Alzheimer's disease or anything like that uh, to at least be considered. Uh, it's two, The phone number is 203 Seven six four eighty one hundred. I'll do that again. Two zero three seven six four eighty one hundred. And it's uh, the website is alzheimers.yale.edu. And so that's okay. I've covered everything. So one thing we haven't really talked about uh, is the collaborative work that you're doing, the so-called Fin study. So who wants to start uh, among the two of you uh, uh, down this path? Yeah. Um, so I'll start off and and tell you a little bit. Our focus in the laboratory in in at the bench has been in understanding how this amyloid peptide makes neurons dysfunctional, mm. and we screened through all the genes that the mouse has, and we found particular gene uh, called prion protein that would capture the amyloid beta from the extracellular space and trigger bad events in the neuron. When we studied that process. We found that it went from prion protein to a protein called mGluR5 and then to an, a protein inside the neuron at the synapse called FYN, F-Y-N. And each of these three steps is a potential place to intervene with a drug. And fortunately, the third step, FYN kinase, is one that there had already been drugs developed for because this group of molecules plays a role in cancer. But the drugs had been developed. They, they're safe. They mm. didn't help cancer that much, but they have the potential to be transferred now to attack Alzheimer's disease. And so with that and with support from the National Institutes of Health, from the companies that are really originally developed the cancer drugs, we got in touch with Chris and we made this connection from the 
laboratory to the clinic, from the bench to the bedside, to take one of these cancer drugs that targets the third step in this process into the clinic. And maybe Chris will say a few words about what's going on with that trial. So yeah, so I mean this this very elegant methodology that Steve and and his uh, laboratory had worked out, um, uh, you know, we found very exciting. And so in putting together this this three year grant that would uh, include uh, basic research, it would also end with a with an actual um, you know nationwide clinical trial uh, for people with mild stage Alzheimer's disease. So the trial, and, and we've gone through a, a phase one study, you know, looking at safety and that the, that the drug, you know, does get into the, to the brain well enough. Um, and, and right now, we're actually just at the point of launching this, this national trial uh, with this uh, Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study Consortium. Uh, so the trial, um, we, we've, we've designed a trial that I think is as interesting as the, uh, as the original methodology. Um, and we're actually going to be using um, brain imaging as the primary outcome, not the amyloid imaging that we've talked about, but um, another kind of PET imaging that looks at uh, metabolism in the brain, kind of regional uh, neuronal activity, regional synaptic activity. Um, so this is a way that we can't approve drugs that, that benefit uh, a PET scan, but we can very much use the PET scan at this stage to try to uh, determine if this is, uh, you know, exciting enough as we hope it will be to go uh, forward to uh, a much larger trial involving, you know, a thousand or more people. What we're talking about here, bluest sky, rosiest scenario, though, is the the possible development or, or identification of a drug that uh, would help people n- not get. Alzheimer's, who were otherwise going to get it, right? That's, and you, well, guys, you guys win the Nobel Prize. And, uh, <laughs> well, I guess I would say, you know, for, for mice in the preclinical models in the laboratory, using this same drug mm-hmm. in mice that have genes that give humans early onset Alzheimer's disease, those mice uh, are able to regain synapses and regain memory function. Mm-hmm. So the question is whether that's true for humans or not, and we won't know for until this trial is complete. Then we'll have the first bit of information. Right, and and also just to clarify, now this is not in a prevention type trial. This is now in people who are very much symptomatic with with mild stage dementia. But usually in our field, what we do to start with in in testing in people is test them in people who have obvious symptoms where it's where it's easier to see effects and to see what's going on. The trials can be done in a shorter period of time. Um, but but if a if a uh, if this particular drug worked, uh, if it showed benefit in, in this kind of a trial, it could also go into you know much earlier stage prevention studies in future. Um, we got a lot of calls coming in here, and not that much time. But I do. Let me, let me grab a call from Sid here in Farmington. Hi, Sid. You're on the air. Oh, uh, that's not Farmington, but oh, um, you're anyway, right. You're... I had a question about kind of what is the natural aging process of the brain. So when you get into your 60s, all your friends are talking about like uh, trouble remembering names and different kind of things. And what's natural to happen? That's a Christopher Van Dyke kind of question, I think. Well, so it may be both, both of us. But, well, I think, you know, it's a very good question. And, and I think we have to emphasize, as much as we hate to admit it, that there are uh, cognitive changes that occur as part of healthy aging. You know, there is some slight worsening of memory. 
uh, and there is some uh, worsening of uh, what we would call executive function um, as well. But it's nothing at all like the ravages of Alzheimer's disease. Now, that being said, in the very early, early stages of Alzheimer's, it can be very hard to tell the two apart. Um, Can I ask you uh, one question, uh, Steve Steve Strittmatter, just going back to what you were talking about before. This is the kind of question I'm asking because there's like 16 things I know about science, and this happens to be one of them. So you were talking before about sort of uh, the the sequence uh, of of things that happen and how thin winds up to be be the place where where you can intervene. But the first thing you mentioned were prions, and one of the 16 things I know about prions is that's mad cow disease and Jakob Kreutzfeld and Kuru and Scrapey and and all that kind of stuff, right? So – is, are we talking about the same kind of prions? Yeah. So um, there's a, a protein that we all have called mm-hmm. the cellular prion protein. It can misfold and become infectious in the diseases that you talked about, mm-hmm. Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, mad cow disease, Kuru, Scrapey. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, that does not happen in Alzheimer's disease. But this same protein that we all have, mm-hmm. which can cause those infections, can also grab on to the misfolded amyloid beta peptide and trigger a degenerative process. Probably the way the infectious particles, it's probably analogous to the way the infectious particles grab onto that same protein and trigger a degenerative process in those infectious diseases. But it's not the infection. Right. Um, We've got some calls coming in, but before that, I want to also sort of ask you how you feel things are as a, in terms of a societal response to this? I mean, you've got, you know, 5 million is a number that's thrown out at U.S. Uh, Alzheimer's patients. I don't know whether you know a different number, but whatever the number is, it's a lot. And so are we kind of at the moonshot stage where from President Obama on down, there's really an incredible will to fund research and pursue research that's, that's going to stop this thing? Yeah, go ahead. You've, you've already yeah, yeah. formulated Well, I think, um, I think there's a growing recognition of how massive the problem is, how much almost all of us is suffering in some way or the other from it. And uh, there's a growing commitment to make that moonshot, but we're by no means there. The the way we're supporting research and discovering new ways to intervene in Alzheimer's is far beyond. It's great that things have stepped up a bit in the last few years, but if you put it on in some kinds of terminology, in this country we spend something on $200 million uh, $200 $200 billion a year on Alzheimer's care, we spend less than 0.3% of that on research in Alzheimer's, and we don't have a therapy today. So the imbalance, very much different than every other disease the NIH supports, the support for Alzheimer's research is on the order of one-third what we spend on all kinds of other diseases put together. Yeah. So, so that? yeah, yeah no, I, I agree completely. And it's it's very underfunded compared to things like cancer and heart disease. And it seems as though the, the ratio that you just described, uh, Stephen Strittmatter, is a recipe for breaking the healthcare system. In other words, if you've got this many patients, and they need a lot of care. And we probably, over the course of that, particularly with that kind of money being spent on care, maybe get a little bit better at caring for them. And so they live 10 years instead of living seven years or something. Uh, but if you're not, if you're doing all of that and not doing the, the research on, on intervention, 
Um, I mean, you're not an economist, but it seems like you're talking about um, a, a plan that will actually break the health care system yeah. rather than turn uh, it around. I don't think it requires some kind of detailed economics. The Alzheimer's problem is growing, in part because we're successful to some degrees in, in making progress on other diseases, the population's aging. Alzheimer's becomes a bigger problem, but we don't have drugs that change the disease course today. We need to make it that kind of moonshot effort that you were talking about, and we haven't come close to doing that. Um, uh, this will be the last question, but um, uh, Christopher Van Dyke, just to build on what he's saying, I'm assuming also the, one of the other reasons that Alzheimer's disease is becoming more and more of a problem, presenting more and more, I mean, there are a lot of different factors that would add to that, but as people live longer, um, they may present with a disease that we just never would have seen if they died when they were 63 or, 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 or something like that. Yeah. Well, um, part of it is about longevity. I mean, that was certainly the increase uh, in, the la in the latter part of the last century. But now it's not a, uh, about uh, longevity anymore. It's really about these population bubbles like us, you know, the baby boomers and then the generations that follow, these huge population bubbles entering the age of, of, of increased risk. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Other than I have to say, um, just for now, you know, go easy on the movie popcorn with like the stuff with the fake butter. Bring your own popcorn and put turmeric on it, all right? Cause that, and that may actually be helpful. Uh, and do consider going to the Brain Ball. It sounds like a great event at the Hartford Science Center on March 7th. Thank you so much to our guest, uh, Dr. Stephen Strittmatter, uh, who is professor of neurology and professor of neurobiology and director of the Memory Disorders Clinic at Yale, and Christopher Van Dyke, professor of psychiatry, neurology, and neurobiology, director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale University. I have a second where I can say this, and you could call if you're interested in these clinical trials, 2037. We'll put that up on our website, too, at WNPR.org. Special thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan, who really does understand this stuff and makes it sound like I do, too. <laughs>